I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast. I'm Anders Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anta. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother's. And we're talking about Kenneth Branagh's latest Hercule Poirot mystery, A Haunting in Venice. And here we go. One of the most enduring genres remains the murder mystery whodunit, though Hollywood hasn't always served it well. Novels and television remain the home for murder mysteries for the most part. But in recent years, we've seen the prestige murder mystery film make something of a comeback, with Ryan Johnson's Knives Out and Glass Onion, and in the more traditional vein, Kenneth Branagh's adaptations of Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot stories. Branagh, both directing and starring as the master detective, began the series with Murder on the Orient Express in 2017, following up with Death on the Nile in 2022. Both of Christie's novels had been previously adapted to the screen, most famously Sidney Lumet's 1974 version of Orient Express. However, for the third entry in the series, A Haunting in Venice, Brana tackles Christie's Poirot novel Halloween Party, retitling it and transposing the setting from England to the titular city of Venice. Like the two previous Brana adaptations, A Haunting in Venice has a large ensemble cast with recognizable stars and features the brilliant Poirot attempting to solve a murder mystery that becomes more complex and devious as the film goes on. Twists and turns lie at every corner, and no one remains above suspicion. This is the primary appeal of these films for most audiences. However, A Haunting in Venice offers a couple of novel twists to the series. As was clear from the marketing of the film, for instance, on first seeing the trailer, I did not immediately register it as another Poirot film. It plays up the haunting and the horror angle of the title. Secondly, it moves from the setting of the first two films on a train or a cruise ship to a haunted orphanage in Venice. The plot of the film involves the famous detective, now in the post-war period, having lost his faith in giving up solving mysteries. He's recruited by his friend, the novelist Ariadne Oliver, played by Tina Fey. Oliver is a recurring character from the books, whom Christie herself acknowledges to be an analog of herself. Poirot's goal here, to determine the truth behind a famous medium, Michelle Yeoh's Joyce Reynolds, who claims to be able to make authentic contact with the dead. All the characters are invited to attend a Halloween party and a seance in a haunted orphanage, hosted by a distraught opera singer. Rowena Drake, played by Kelly Riley, whose daughter was supposedly driven insane by the ghosts of the orphanage's children and killed herself one year ago. Of course, there are plenty of surprises and subsequent murders and betrayals. A Haunting in Venice takes advantage of its atmospheric setting in the orphanage, especially once a storm hits the city and the guests are unable to leave by boat. We get creepy passages, lightning and thunder, and jump scares aplenty. Poirot himself finds his own sanity pressed by the setting and his past traumatic experiences. Now, I never saw all of the first two Brana Poirot films, just the first half of Murder on the Orient Express. And while I mostly enjoyed what I saw there, A Haunting in Venice seems much more anchored in physical sets, shooting in the city of Venice versus the backlots and CGI establishing shots found in the first film or in the clips of the second that I've seen. It makes a big difference in a film that's all about the difference between authenticity and illusion, and the ability to discern the difference. I think the film may benefit this fall from being horror-adjacent with a story of ghosts and hauntings, while still pleasing those who want a murder mystery story that offers up a satisfying ending and resolution. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. 
Hercule Poirot, I've found something. I've looked at it from every which way. I am the smartest person I ever met, and I can't figure it out, so I came to the second. You are up to something, my friend. I've seen a million of these so-called psychics, each one a fake. I do not believe in psychics. Come with me to a seance. Spot the con I can't. Detective, you are here to discredit me, but I can talk to the dead. I'd give all I have to hear my daughter's voice. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. Listening. So what did you guys think? How does A Haunting in Venice stack up to Brano's first two Poirot mysteries? Is it too scary to work as a murder mystery in the standard genre mode? Or is this a good way to freshen up the series? Anton, I know you enjoyed the first two films, so what's your take? Well, I'd actually say I didn't love the second one. I'm okay. kind of lukewarm on it. Um, and I think A Haunting in Venice is probably my favorite of the three. And I think that combination of gothic ghost story and classic whodunit is really compelling and it works really well. It's well executed and the atmosphere is great. And in part because of the location shooting, which was a course correction after one of the worst features of Death on the Nile, I thought was the really bad CGI for a lot of the Egyptian setting. Yeah, so I've seen, I've me, seen the shots of that. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, like, um, you know, these whodunits, like this is not trying to um, reinvent the genre. Of course not. It's following a classic Christie novel, you know, with some variation, as you noted. Um, but it has its own pleasures in the, you know, it's someone playing within the rules of the game. And I think they're playing well. And so I liked it a lot. How about you, Aaron? Yeah, I enjoyed it. And I like the fact that it does do a different um, approach from the others, not only in terms of setting, not only in terms of the filmmaking style, but also just the blending of genres, right? The first two are very much just solely existing in that whodunit um, genre. And this one is trying something different, not only with the approach to like Poro as a character, but then also just the way that it resolves the mystery because it leaves some questions hanging in terms of, the um satisfaction or not of like his his answers for it right yeah there's, there's elements that are kind of left hanging um i don't know if it's my favorite of the three i'm i'm kind of weird where i find death on the nile extremely enjoyable and it's on like a pure mystery level i actually think it's the most compelling and the really the one that kept yeah. me guessing more than the others um that be that as may, it's also the corniest of the films and it's the yeah. broadest. And I actually think that works with the performers that he's assembled, like Gal Gadot and Russell Brand and Army Hammer and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's just, yeah. Then there has weird choices like the flashback sequences and the CGI sets where it's like, you know, if those elements weren't in the movie, I'd probably think it's like a very good whodunit. Um, but it just, it's, there's a kind of weird corny, cheap 90s ishness to it yeah <laughs> that, but without um, the the sort of the filmmaking style of the 90s i, I know what you're saying though yeah right? no no exactly but um a haunting in venice is like a fun mystery horror hybrid that has a lot of the same appeals as the other ones and of like a traditional whodunit but i think the added genre and stylistic angle makes it like slightly more interesting as a film yeah i was i was surprised by how much I, I liked this film. Like, I don't think it's 
again, as you say, not reinventing the wheel, but there's something satisfying about that. And yet it, it offers enough variation and twists on the genre to to make it, a, I think, a solid recommend. And I really actually liked the the filmmaking in it. Like, it's actually very classical in a lot of ways, even though Branna still loves his canted angles. <laughs> oh, yeah, the canted angles are so amazing. Many. Yeah. And he picked, well, not only just canted angles, he picked some very unusual um, angles to, for different shots. It reminds me a lot of um, uh, the King's Speech uh, director. Tom Hooper. Oh, Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper, who also will often choose a very unusual angle for a shot where you'll have, you know, a character to the side of a frame and a whole bunch of negative space or uh, like a shot. It's like very high above in front of the door mm-hmm. in this one of the, the Palazzo. And it's like the characters are down at the bottom and he's using, you know, um, almost like, I don't know if he's using like kind of the fishbulb lens at times. He is. To get that yeah. rounded. And what it, yeah, he's yeah. using wide lenses to warp yeah. people's faces at points. Yeah. It actually veers it, into almost Terry Gilliam territory. At yeah, times. yeah. You get close-ups with that. But I think that's what I like. It is very stylistic. It is very intentionally. It's not like when I say it's classical filmmaking, I don't mean that it's um, like sort of like, classically framed and stuff like that it's very stylistic but what i mean is that it's not relying on cgi it's not for the most part it's not um relying on uh you know big flashy scenes or or, um, camera movements and stuff like that but it is doing interesting things and it's trying to i think it really works because this one more from what it, than what I know of the the, the stories of the first two and, and even uh, Christie's novels is really leaning into the psychological aspect because the characters uh, are dealing with their post-war traumas and things. And, and so you are trying to, it's, it's a very expressionistic in that way because the scenery, the setting, the camera lenses, the, the, the strange angles, the strange lenses are actually meant to express the, the inner psychological yeah, uh, disruptions of the characters. So it's very, that's actually very classical if you think of expressionism as a, a classical mode of filmmaking. I always felt that um, his Murder on the Orient Express was good, but just very straightforward. Um, Which is a lot the of the second, appeal of the film, right? Yeah, like, you know, it, it is what it is. And it, you know, a good adaptation of one of the most famous whodunits. The second one, I think you're right, Aaron. There is that sort of... Um, it's a little bit like lighter and partly because of the, like the sunny, like sort of uh, Egyptian. Like desert mummy? Setting. <laughs> yeah. But like, it just has like, it has a little bit of a different feel. Um, I don't love that as much. This one leans into that, that atmosphere, but I also think we could probably overstate the, um, the genre blending because I think mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's horror. Like I, it's a ghost story and a lot of ghost stories are mysteries. Mm-hmm. And so it's leaning into that aspect of, you know, um, a lot of ghost stories. The the mystery is like, you know, uh, is there a ghost? Killed. Yeah. Well, is there a ghost? And then, you know, if if there is or who caused that original um, yeah. death, who, who was the murder of that original person? That's what a lot of ghost stories are about. Um, but here you're right. Um, it does. You know, we get a few uh, jump scares. We get some of the other conventions of horror uh, and it's the sort of thing where like those elements aren't like, they're not so much that they get in the way of like this still being an Agatha Christie whodunit, but they do kind of just like make things um, more richer and atmospheric. And, you know, it's the movie's never like super scary, but you're a little bit like, 
on edge a little bit more about like who might be doing what. So to be clear for listeners, um, do you guys agree that like, while it is a little bit scary, it's not too scary to like recommend to most people unless they're yeah. particularly yeah. scary. Yeah. Kids. Yeah. Totally, there was this, totally. there was this person sitting next to me at, uh, at the movie, I think like a Gen Z couple. And at the end of the film, he was like, turned to his, uh, the person he was with and he was like, well, uh, you know, I don't really like horror movies. I don't like scary movies, but this was scary. But then he always explained it right after. So it made me feel better. <laughs> and then it's like, you know, it wasn't too scary. So I didn't, it's not like I wanted to turn it off, but I was well, like, like, oh, that's like a little spooky. <laughs> but I feel like this is a deal of the, the detective uh, genre, right? Is the detective character who's able to yes. explain it. And that goes right back to like Edgar Allan Poe and stuff, right? With the, yep. like, the idea of the detective and the gothic merging. So you have this, these creepy events, you know, murder is creepy. Uh, you know, and yet people who wouldn't normally like the horror genre as it became established in the early 20th century, I think you still enjoy this film. Yeah, but like, so just like back to the horror thing, I I know what you mean with the fact that gothic fiction is not necessarily horror fiction, is not necessarily mystery fiction, but they share so many structural cues with each other. They do. And if you they boil do. down essentially what they are as a story, they're all the same. It's just we place them into different genres because of what has occurred in the hundred plus years exactly so you take horror this, evolves out of gothic yeah, but you take this movie this movie's drawing on on a, like a, a fiction level not just david christie but also edgar Allan poe which is yep. referenced in the movie with the, the boy, boy who's reading edgar Allan poe and it gives him the idea as we learn later to blackmail yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mother um but then also filmmakers who were like obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe so not just you know universal horror stuff of the 30s and 40s or um, gothic dramas like the 90 uh, the 44 Jane Eyre or um, the uninvited things like that right where they don't maybe necessarily cross over into out and out horror but they still like exist in that cinematic world yeah but then also stuff like Roger Corman and Mario Bava where it's the idea that the setting informs so much of the actual mystery itself yes where it's like you know how many shots of just stuff that's like in rooms is is very important, not just on a atmospheric level, but also on a mystery level, because those elements of the scenario might be revealing an, a crucial aspect of the mystery. Exactly, they're clues. Yeah. So in a, in an old Roger Corman movie, you know those are a little bit cornier and stuff. But they're still well made, especially the Poe ones and scenes where it's like, oh, this statue is actually a secret passageway. Like you touch something and it opens up or a Bava film. It's the idea that that like seemingly nondescript aspect in the corner of the room is actually like hiding a dead body or like a skeleton or something. You know, there's some like macabre thing that's just hiding in plain sight. And Poe's, I mean, you, you mentioned this, Anders, but right, Poe's the perfect um, predecessor for this because Poe, not only does the gothic and you know uh, horror, but then he is the the inventor of the detective fiction as we understand it today with Dupin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the 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 ratio the ratiocinating like uh, detective who has to think through logically to figure out things, right? So Poirot is obviously in that tradition, right? Without without uh, Poe, you probably don't have even Conan Doyle. Uh, yeah, you don't you don't have that. Sherlock Holmes, and then you don't yeah. And then no, 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 I guess Christie. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, again, this is this is almost a side argument. I don't know what the, I don't know how we want to categorize as like what's the overall genre in terms of like horror and stuff, because, you know, 
I just think like when we often talk about horror, the emotion of like terror, horror is not really what this movie is trying to do. Oh, for sure. For sure. But it is trying to make you scared and afraid at times. But, you know, um, the ghost story like this, the gothic, like the mystery, um, the fear, part of the pleasure of the fear is then in the discovery. Whereas a lot of horror, um, there there is no discovery. Or if you discover something, it's the it's worst. It's, you, yeah, you discover pure terror, right? Like, yeah. right, in the most extreme form, right? A Lovecraftian, like, total horror of the universe. But it's interesting that the movie does actually tap in at times to some of those philosophical um, concerns. And I don't know, like, I haven't, I've read some Agatha Christie. I haven't read um halloween party neither of that so i i can't you know describe what's uh you know what's in what's faithful and what's not in terms of this adaptation well, and it's it good you point out from the change england to it's not yeah. actually set in venice right halloween party is set in, in england but it still has the plot of the the opera singer and inviting them all for the in the in the spiritualism event doing a seance things like that as far as i know um, yeah, from the, the quick summary online <laughs> yeah but like so um one thing Brana has done in all three, and again, because I'm not I'm not a Poirot expert, so I can't speak to like this is adaptation, but um I've read some of her works, but Brana brings in kind of like in all three, he brings in elements of um kind of like psychological trauma to the Poirot character in little bits of pieces of sort of like flashback scenes to try to explain a little bit of like who this mysterious guy who's obsessed with, right? Like, you know, the perfect symmetry of an egg and things like Mm -hmm. this, but it tries to give like a reasoning of like, why would someone kind of like um, psychologically be fixated on that? And this movie did a good job. I thought in this brief, you know, and I'm not going to overstate its significance, but did a good job of kind of like him having to tackle his, you know, what you described as sort of his like loss of faith where he's, and what he means by that, and there's a whole line in the movie where he talks about he's essentially like after two world wars and seeing all the terrible things people have done on a personal level through the murder cases, he's like, I just don't believe that there is like a, like an ordered meaning to the universe. There's not a God and like I can't believe that things are meant to make sense. But that's interesting because ultimately the mystery genre is always about bringing order to the chaos of the events and the pleasure of it, unlike um, – the horror genre, the pleasure, the ultimate pleasure of detective fiction is in that ordering of the chaos and like um, kind of like the revealing of things, the discovery of things, and then sort of ordering them out at the end. And so when people say like, oh, like, you know, this movie will have like that ending where like Poirot's just going to tell everyone what happened. And you're like, yeah, that's the best part of like these, yeah. these kinds of movies, these kinds of stories that the best part is when he tells you how it all happened. Like, that's what it's trying to do. That's the game. That's the, the, the last part of the game. I must tell you, madame, I have been all my life uncharmed by your kind. My kind? Opportunists who prey on the vulnerable, no? You don't believe in the soul's endurance after death. I have lost my faith. How sad for you. Yes, it is most sad. The truth is sad. Please understand, madame, I would welcome with open arms any honest sign of devil or demon or ghost. For if there is a ghost, there is a soul. If there is a soul, there is a God who made it. And if we have God, we have everything, meaning, order, justice. But I have seen too much of the world, countless crimes, two wars, the bitter evil of human indifference. And I conclude, no, 
No God, no ghosts. With respect, no mediums who can speak to them. You were saying... So one of the things I like, and I, I want to get your your take on this, Aaron, and, and Anton too. But uh, you want to hear what I have to say? No. Getting don't. back to the cinematography and the the change here, this movie. If you told me that this is directed by the same guy who made uh, Henry V and, and and his other adaptations, I'd be like, yeah, of course. In a way that I wasn't quite from what I saw of like Murder on the Orient Express, right, or or some of his other recent films. Um, not all, but uh, so this is, I think, very much more now returning to being a Barana film in a lot of ways, uh, including not only the the filmmaking style, but also his use of some of the actors and others, right? We get a couple of the actors returning from Belfast, Jamie Jordan and Jude Hill, right? As the, the father yep. and son yep. again. Um, so I like that he's drawing on his, uh, you know, repertoire of actors again here and things like that. So what did you think of this as a, as a Brana film? And also then maybe we can use that as a jumping off to talk about some of the performances and, and some of the performances, the actors who you might not expect as well in a film like this. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's perfect because I was wanting to talk about, yeah, it is a Brana film and Brana is, you know, despite you don't want to always use the crutch of like, well, he's a Shakespearean actor first and foremost. Right. But he is, and that does inform all of his decisions. And it, it, explains why he's interested in a genre like this in stuff like Agatha Christie works, which he respects on its own genre level. You know, I feel like he wouldn't ever actually say that she's a Shakespeare or anything, but her importance to readers worldwide is, is enormous. And she does define that genre in a way that she actually similar to a Shakespeare invents as the same and then refines the, like the formula of what and, we expect. And Christie might be, I could be wrong. I don't know if JK Rowling is actually, but like, Christie is up there as one of the best-selling authors, like worldwide. Yep. Absolutely, exactly. And so if it's not her, you know, it's J.K. Rowling. But one, you know, like she sold billions. Yeah, no, it's true. But so, like, she's also quintessentially could, an English writer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, but so, like, Brana is in. You know, Brana takes he approaches genre, and we saw this in Thor, right? His Marvel movie. Yeah. He takes yeah. an, a, an earnest approach to it. He takes it seriously. He doesn't condescend to the material and he's not interested in actually giving the audience any out because this is what leads us into something else is that the determining factor of whenever you're putting on a play, right, is tone. You have to cure, you have to set the tone, you have to hold the tone and everybody has to be consistent within that tone. And then the other most important aspects of it are the pacing because it's people in front of you on a stage. So you have to build and yeah. swell and like all the tension, all the suspense is built out of how fast you say the line and how slow you say the yeah. line. Right. It's also the cadence of his delivery. Why Bron is probably one of the best enunciators of oh, any actor yes. ever. And despite what you think about him as a Shakespearean performer, some people I know have let are less charitable towards him. He is process, probably the best like speaker of Shakespearean dialogue like in just a pure rhythm sense of like any actor ever. He is incredibly articulate and enunciates everything so well. You t there's a whole sequence in All is True, his Shakespeare adaptation, um, like Shakespeare kind of fictional biopic where he plays Shakespeare. Yeah. And there's a scene where he, um, 
recites some of Shakespeare's sonnets and the way he does it is just like, even if you thought that movie was bunk, that scene, you would have to admit that the like, wow, that's like one of the best recitations I've ever heard of a Shakespeare sonnet. It's just, he hits everything so perfectly with the rhythm. As you will ever be when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends, possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope with what I most enjoy, contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee and then my state. Like to the lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. But then it, you can even take that into the setting, right? Like he's chosen a literal set as the the film and this is in the three of them because you know christie's often adapted into plays well but actually i was just gonna say that the famously the mousetrap right yeah. which earlier one of the earliest Dilsum movies that i saw this year was the uh, either you see see how they run the the film the mystery another murder mystery film i could have mentioned as this sort of revival uh starring Saoirse ronan and um sam rockwell and it's uh it's, it also includes Agatha Christie as a character, and it's a set around <laughs> was like the longest, performance of the Mousetrap. That was like the longest running play, yeah, right, exactly. In the, the London West history. Yeah. Yeah. No, but so it's just it's this idea that like while a lot of other filmmakers, right, they they sh um, don't believe in these kind of theatrical shortcuts, but Brana understands the value of theatrical shortcut because it puts the audience into the mindset, right. So the fact that the Venice mansion and the weather is a pathetic fallacy right something bad yep. is going to happen so it yep. has to storm it has to rage there has to be literal ghosts knocking on the doors and the idea of the wind and so people will be like that's corny and brana the way brana sets it up is like no 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 it actually is essential because it's an emotional mindset he puts you into that most now you're you're susceptible to the like you are essentially um sinking into the tone to the yeah. pacing you're being absorbed into not only the mystery but then the world that it's creating through this theatrical um ensemble of actors right because that's the other thing is that what's really essential in a brana film and i think sometimes makes or breaks it is the casting decisions for sure okay before we get into casting in in the actors building on what you were saying i like i love that point about Brana's approach to the material informed by his Shakespearean experience because you're you're totally right and it's such a strange connection but like his approach to Agatha Christie his approach to Thor you know Marvel Comics is it's not condescending to the material it's taking it like on straightforward as something that like needs to be dealt with seriously within it within its own you know terms and in tone and all that, which is very interesting in comparison to, say, um, think of how Joss Whedon approaches Thor, the character of Thor in the Avengers, versus how Brana approaches Thor. We get the fish out of water jokes in um, Brana's original Thor, but we don't get this overall sense that we have to kind of smirk at this character. We can never take it seriously. And then if we go with um, 
the whodunit, we take a Ryan Johnson's approach to the whodunit, which again condescends to the material and assumes that a whodunit it's on its on its face is kind of a bit of a farce. And like we can't take it seriously. Whereas genres where whereas Brana's approach to the whole genre is like, no, no, this is like, you know, just like a Shakespearean play has its five acts, and Agatha Christie has to work out the way it does, and we have to treat with respect that final reveal when he goes through all the different things. And it's like your point just like clarifies that I think there is something, whether it's the Shakespearean or what, but that approach to the genre and for me, that's very satisfying when someone approaches the genre without that kind of smirk and condescension. Even if I, I liked aspects of um, Ryan Johnson's whodunits, but that is the difference between, say, what Braun is doing with these Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot, and um, what we're getting with you know the Daniel Craig, uh, Ryan Johnson films. Yeah, and it actually goes one step further, and we this will lead us back into the performers, but it's that by virtue of taking the genre seriously, like he also takes the characters seriously and he takes them as people seriously. And that's actually essential to Poirot in this film, right? Like this film and the others, his whole coming to a realization about what the actual solution to the mystery is, is predicated on him understanding these people, not the fronts they're putting up, not the caricature they might resemble, but the actual person, their past, their real wants, their real desires, their real fears and the real hatreds, right? Like Mm -hmm. he essentially has to understand them as fully dimensional human beings in order to solve the mystery, which is why, you know, his investigation is also interviews. Yes. The interviews reveal the character, but also reveal their secrets and their sympathies. So by the same time, it makes you suspicious to the characters. It makes you sympathetic to the characters, right? You start and, to care about these people because they've lost things yeah. and you learn and why. That, so for instance, the, the, you get the brother and sister, Desdemona and Alessandro, right? Who Yeah, Romani's uh, are, from Hungary. Yeah, who are obviously, you know displaced from world war ii and all this but they you know in another film they could be just kind of supporting villain characters right but here they're given uh, a little more rich characterization i need to know all right i should have i, I should have researched this before but you're like i am curious whether the whole we get that a, a scene where those characters talk about the the meaning of watching um the first half of meet me in meet me in st louis and it it, which, the film which gives a lot of Halloween like touching party. attention to that. Sorry, what? Which which involves yeah, a, a it's Halloween the Halloween party. when the yeah, old kids yeah. burn the street in the streets. You're right. Just burn and so stuff. you know, I, I so I, I honestly can't say. It. I don't know if it's in the the Christie or not. But regardless, uh, Brana makes that into a moment of meaning. Like it's not tossed off as sort of just like a thing. But even think about like right the resolution of the mystery. It's when we find out that it's the mom has poisoned her daughter, killed her and then killed others to cover it up. It's like, that's the worst possible result because it's the darkest. Yeah. But it's also like, you can just tell it makes him sad to reveal it. Yeah. So the detective has to not like you, you made an interesting point about like the, the detective can't just take the performances of the people around them. No. So in that sense, they have to function as both like director and right. Poirot's the director always. In the sense of um, not only does he sort of lock the doors and control the setting of like where people can go, which is sort of what, you know, like the standard procedure. No one can leave this place until we, Mm -hmm. we solve things. But then you also get the one-on-one talks. And so he has to understand them also as actors, right. And, and, and characters and not just as the performance. 
Well, Anton, if we're taking a theatrical understanding, he's wouldn't be the director; he'd be the stage manager character, the stage which is man, a classic yes. Shakespearean figure, yeah. right? Who investigates yeah. the very mode of the the play in the play while also right. interrogating the reality of the other characters. Measure, or basically, is we're back to like measure for measure, where the is it the is it the duke or the prince who, yeah. who goes around in and, measure for measure? Yeah. yeah, and you know, in in disguise, measures up each person. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in lots of his stuff, but uh, yeah. um, so like at, on a performance level, like I think, yeah, a lot of the key scenes in this movie rely on the performers that he's cast, um, like Jamie Dornan, the scene where he talks about um, Bergen Belson, like mm-hmm. the concentration camps and like he, you know, attempts to kill himself afterwards. He's yeah. so disgusted with what yeah. he saw. You have um, Kelly Riley from Yellowstone, like talking as the mother discussing the loss of her daughter, but then also like the idea of, you know, she could never sing again after losing her. Cause she was a, an opera singer. Like what did, did you guys like the performances? Cause uh, across the board, I thought they were quite good. Um, but my favorite of all the additions is probably just Tina Fey who actually yeah. beat, works really well. It's like a 1940s. I, I wasn't sure how I was going to like it. I was like, I remember the casting I was like, what Tina Fey in this movie? Kind of I like, she's up, a bit of a Liz Lemon character, but it's funny. It's kind of, like you know, she's a novel, the novelist character. Yeah, but they, uh, Ariadne, her and Brana have a really good. Um, they have a they really did have a good rapport, and you could buy yeah. them as like friends. And right? they and both then, can toss off the lines like really. There's like some moments of like banter between them that are really clever and well delivered, and they could become kind of like that could just kind of get like mushed over. You know, but with, think like, about it. Like, what is Tina? What is Tina Fey most known for in like a, in the comic comic universe? Right, like. She pioneered the idea of fast dialogue on mm. TV again. Like 30 Rock is all, but the jokes are falling over each other where you can't even hear them all because there's mm. just so many coming at you, which is, again, it's a, it's a cadence and tone yeah. thing. Like it's, I like the fact that Brana, he looks for people who's like, I think you'll fit in this and I can like shape you into more like a classical setting because you have the skills necessary for it. Even if you're like, you do something very mo- you know, modern. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I like Tina Fey uh, quite a bit, but I thought like Jamie Dornan was good in his limited role. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kelly Riley is just one of those characters. I I, I feel like she's an actor who can like only portray tortured yeah. people. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I totally. think the first movie I ever saw her in was like Flight. <laughs> she was like, yeah, exa- Flight, True Detective season two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, just she's just always so sad looking. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Michelle Yeoh? As I mean, she. Not to give too much, she doesn't have as big a role, but it's uh, it's definitely a kind of. Uh, it, We've already spoiled it. Andy, man. <laughs> yeah, so she's obviously not an authentic, <laughs> or is she? But the um, uh, yeah, I thought I mean, that, Michelle... that, that's the that's the unsettled part. Exactly, but but no, I, do I think thought... that Michelle Yeoh she kind of gets the because she also she's coming off like an Oscar win in her like for sure round, uh, she gets the she gets the the, the act the big acting role in the movie right yeah, yeah who's the biggest name performance and you the kill the biggest name on, yeah and the character happened in all of his films now, right yeah. where she's just over the top and she's yeah. like spinning around and like no but think about it, like 2017's Murder on the Orient Express Johnny Depp is the guy who's killed he's the biggest star in the movie even if he was on his downward trajectory right yeah 2022's Death on the Nile it's Gal Gadot gets killed. She's the biggest star in the movie. <laughs> like it's it's a thing now. So I feel like if he's gonna do another one, he's gonna have to misdirect it because yeah. mm. cast two big stars and you never know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that I I think that um, in terms of the casting, like so Tina Fey and Michelle Yeoh, 
well cast partly also because they then they feel like they those characters who you know we've never met before and you and you're matched up against both those characters in different scenes are kind of like matched up against Poirot who now we've seen like three movies with Braun in that role but then also just like a famous character and they I feel like the casting also helps to kind of like make us believe that those characters are holding their own against Poirot so in terms of the banter and um you know, like she understands the how the mysteries work. Um, you know, Tina Fey's writer character understands how the mysteries work. And then there's an interesting exchange between Michelle Yeoh's um, spiritualist, like medium, and Poirot about like, you know, do you believe these things? And she has, um, Yeoh has like really interesting, within that scene, she plays it a, d- a couple different ways between the like, why don't you just have some fun sort of like poking him? And then also like this earnest like, all this stuff is real and it tortures me. And it's interesting because after that, you're like, I don't actually know how I should read her. Like, is she just a total con or does she, or is she, you know, this nurse who is like tortured by the, the sounds of ghosts. Like, mm-hmm. and she plays it in a way that um, is, you know, it, it was a compelling scene, but it also like, it totally leaves you unclear on where she stands and what's real there, which the film then be, sort of leads into as one of its themes, I think. You know, I was pleasantly surprised that also just in a couple, I like, I enjoyed a couple of the smaller performances from actors who I wasn't as familiar with, like Ricardo Scamasio as the, his bodyguard slash the former police officer. What else is his name? John Wick. John Wick too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually Kyle Allen as the, uh, the ex-fiance, he's, he's kind of appropriately, like, I wasn't sure how to take him at first. Like, is he just this? slimy you know cat you always get a character like that they show up they're so like kind of smarmy and annoying at the start but then yeah there's more to it so you know i like that and then of course the the biggest thing is casting uh, i thought jude hill from uh, belfast as the son you know the version of himself from belfast <laughs> so what did you what did you think of the boy so my uh, sense it, on you i'm Anders, always iffy on precocious char- child okay. characters yeah. right i find them sometimes uh, it's a tricky thing to do. I thought he he comported himself well at the beginning. I wasn't sure how to feel about him, but then you know, revealing the, his uh, knowingness and the uh, the blackmail and all that, and that you know, makes the precocious interesting better. because exactly. then it becomes actually a character flaw, right? Like, right. the boy thought he could like do something, you know, and work it his way, but it actually shows how still innocent and un, un- understanding he is of things, right? How exactly, because otherwise, I think uh, many other writers and then perf- and and directors and performers would have done something with that in, in the current climate, where it'd be like, "Oh, this kid's no, I don't like that." But I think it, it resolves well. No, exactly. That's the way that they set up that character. You know, there's something suspect because the precocious child is such a type. Yeah. And because the film continues to lean into that type, you're like aware that there's another shoe to drop there on a mystery and, sense. And the fact that the the orphanage is haunted by children, he's the only child character. But so, yeah, the, the character is like, I could tell the audience that I was seeing it with and it was a pretty full house. And again, you know, pretty young folks, because I feel like young folks always go to for like kind of a spooky movie, especially this time of year. And they would kind of laugh when he would show up on screen and say something really like ominous, really adult. Like, and it was a mix of like a, oh, that's like a silly line. And then it's also like, oh, that's kind of creepy. Like, (laughs) is he know something that they don't? Um, So it's, you know, it's a bit of an unsettling aspect. And that's another classic 
um, gothic thing. Think about the most famous gothic story of all time, Turn of the Screw. It's all about two weird kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like who seem to know more and oh, I see, you know, I see him out the window. The co- like the coachman, he's, don't you know he's there and stuff. Yeah, the and you don't really friend. know whether he's having one over on you. And this movie resolves aspects of that, right? It proves that it, because he's blackmailing the mother, you can understand the kind of game he's playing and how he's trying to present himself to Poirot and the others. But it doesn't actually resolve. Like, does he hear the voices or not? Yeah, and things like that. And so this movie is in that interesting space where I, I don't really, you know, you don't want to like psychoanalyze Brana or read too much into it or anything, but there is some actual interesting, like spiritual aspect to it where the film seems to come down or it, the film seems to shift closer in the direction of the, yeah, the mystery is resolved, but there's like, or the, the murder is resolved. The murder is solved, but the mystery of like the reality of these spirits the movie like sh- takes a firm step in the direction of more likely than less from where it started. But with yeah, regards I, to like, I, all elements. I, I would agree that's more than where it started in the sense of partly because the Poirot character as the rational skeptic goes into it being like, I'm going to totally disprove this medium. And then initially we get, you know, a total disproving of what we thought was like this compelling seance. But then it keeps to reinforce, but it keep it holds one foot on the uh, the possibility of the of the, uh, you know, um, the poisoning messing up his mind. Yeah. So that allows a rational explanation for all of the strange things we see, but it keeps the door open the entire time for the fact that potentially um, there could be more. And that then kind of resolves Poirot's like philosophical conundrum that he has, where it kind of opens the door and says, it says that you could believe in more, than just meets the eye, but it has to be a matter of faith. It can't be proven. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like the the thematic resolution, but I think it's interesting within this film to settle on that and to not just firmly like close the door and be like, Oh, like, you know, that, that, um, all that, all the spiritualist stuff was not real. It was yeah, just it was all, all a con. The, the poisoning. And then the even the fact thing. that we go down into the basement and we do discover, Oh, like this creepy ghost story, about children during plague being like abused and tortured in this uh, nursery or sorry, uh, not nursery, uh, like this hospital for kids, right? Or doctors and nurses yeah. are the, the, the targets. True, and, yeah. um, a play, it was a plague ward, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we get this really creepy moment where like oh, that's revealed and you see like the, the dead skeletons, boy yeah. skeleton and stuff. And you're like, so it goes out of its way to like show that there's like, there's more to the stories than meets the eye. So it's not, it, you know, it's interesting that it, the film, it's not fully embracing like a, a Poirot, like rationalization of everything. Yeah. But it's also, it ties the kind of spiritualism or at least like a, a, a possibility of faith also into prose re engagement with the world and the uh, faith in humanity again, in some small way. Right. Yes, yes. Because you have the whole speech about he's, you know, doesn't want to believe in that anymore but but it you know faith you cannot resolve the question of whether that place is haunted off evidence alone you have to do it out of a measure of faith and the movie kind of takes the same approach or at least shows the Poirot character taking the same approach towards humanity in general where it's like the evidence is the, to the contrary but for it to work it's actually more like helpful and hopeful to like take a step of faith in terms of people are worth helping and like worth engaging with. And that's why, you know, he has 
the line of people outside his door yep. wanting him to solve their mysteries and right at the end he kind of takes that up again and hilariously seems to solve the guy's entire conundrum based off one letter yeah <laughs> but he but then he also kind of solves like um he doesn't punish all the people who've done things wrong no and he allows but he also like kind of he doesn't force them to but he allows them to try to sort of like make their own amends and there's a few different scenarios where it's like you know so if you've been blackmailing maybe you could use this money for something better and then you know he but he doesn't he doesn't force the kid to go give the money to anyone or or turn himself in or something like that but that that you're right that but that encouragement of other people to act is is the kind of like the the step of faith towards believing that humanity is worthwhile because there is an interesting thing about like if i can't find like you know it's like if i can't find a perfect egg like what's the point of this whole universe like but he's moved beyond that but he he definitely the character was like locked in this like i guess view of how things are yeah great it sounds like we all uh, enjoyed the film and, and found it satisfying and there's it's it's uh, a good genre piece, but also has uh, a little bit more to it just to pique the interest in that way. So definitely, I, I w- I'm glad we ended up talking about this for, for this episode. So do you think what, I don't know, I haven't read enough Christie novels. Would I, did any of you have any ideas of which ones they might do next or heard anything about any rumblings? I don't actually know. Because these movies have the, you know, first Murder on the Orient Express was like a pretty big hit. Yeah, but then the subsequent ones because Death on the Nile was pushed, pushed, pushed during COVID, and then kind of just unceremoniously dumped because obviously it was produced by Fox. Disney yep. bought Fox. Disney yep. doesn't really care about it anymore, and then it kind of you know flopped. This one has made a bit more money, but it was also a much tighter budget because it was produced. You know, it was the the production started under Disney's shepherding. Uh, and so like they kind of set the terms now as like mm-hmm. the fact that it's under 20th century studios or whatever like you know their new version of fox so i feel like they understood okay we're going to be a little more deliberate we'll put in that like soft pre-halloween but not in the actual like horror section of the the release mm-hmm. schedule yeah um and you know it's not making a ton of money but i it'll definitely make its budget back right like <laughs> yeah i'm curious if he's going to do more of these but i could also think you but also like think about um I'm I'm curious about like revenue streams for these kind of films because I feel like these films have a huge amount of whether it's cable, which is still a thing. If this was on, on, if this was on, and when this shows up on streaming, on Disney right, Plus, this, yeah. this seems very like it will be at Netflix top ten for like a month if it's when it shows up, kind of thing. And so I wonder if there's like money there because I feel like these are the kind of movies that are much more rewatchable than like many films that come out now. Not necessarily because they're like better than other films. It's just they fit. There's a reason why people return to these mysteries and return to specifically Agatha Christie, right? Like, and demographically, then you get a bunch of people. You know, a lot of time older people who, will, if they if they are connected with streaming, like people like our parents, you know, they'll this is the exact kind of movie they'll want to watch on streaming, but they might not venture out to the movie theater to see. Yeah, so I don't know which one he'll do next if he can do. I hope he does another, and I kind of hope he keeps using it as a way to engage with like different genre elements and and in his own weird way telling his strange story of like the mid of like no the early mid 20th century through these movies the the real question will be whether he could could anyone pull off the murder of roger Ackroyd, um a movie version i i'm not if you don't know what the the twist is i'm not going to tell you but i i just don't know if someone could actually put it on film 
The attempt on my life occurred at approximately two minutes after the chime of midnight. You were the first to find the body at, uh... Don't you dare look at me like a murder suspect. We're old friends. Every murder is somebody's old friend. But you have written too many clever murders to fall at the foot of your first victim, and you are so far viably alibied by the chef for the time, which is why I shall now ask you to assist me in my investigation. When do we start? When you collect for me our host. I knew you were in there somewhere. All it took was a corpse, and look at you. Hercule Poirot all over again. So at the end of the summer, uh, all three of us reviewed the Pirates of the Caribbean movies for the purposes of our retrospective. There are only three. Um, <laughs> uh, each of us tackled one of them. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe we've got the reviews up on the site. I thought we did a pretty good job of tackling what makes those films like interesting. As I said in my review of At World's End, the last one, it's kind of become something of a recurring motif in, in our reviews of going back to these films that at the time were criticized uh, and finding that some, not, not all, but some of the criticism uh, at the time may have been uh, hasty or that time has judged them kindly in, in some way that, uh, that, this, that those, their excesses or um, perceived flaws at the time are, are kind of look like, uh, you know, virtues now. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was mostly for At World's End because I think the first two Pirates uh, films in the trilogy were, were quite well received. But um, did, did you both rewatch all of them? or Because uh, I did. I rewatched all three of the films in order before preparing to write At World's End. Um, I did not and- get to rewatch At World's End. I will say I think you and Aaron are both way too generous towards both the Matrix sequels, which I know you're, that's partly what you're talking about, and <laughs> At World's End. Um, I, I need to rewatch at world's end. So I can't judge it. I, when no, I saw it definitely, in theaters, the movies definitely have an hour too long and I understand why people think it kind of devolves into a mess, but I kind of love the, like the mix of the maelstrom and the whirlpool and like the whirling ideas going but on the screen. I feel like but also yes, I love in, the in matrix like, surrealism and like playfulness of the first or, and we strange weirdness of the like middle part of that film. Like the whole idea of Davy Jones locker is just like so crazy. And like, you know the way that I, I love the moment when they go over the edge of the world and the, the it fades to black and you actually get the recording of the dead men tell no tales from the uh, actual Pirates of the Caribbean ride and it actually cuts to black for like a few seconds before you awaken with Jack Sparrow in Davy Jones' locker and that that I'm like that's a that's a great bit of filmmaking. I don't know. I just I just feel like you're in danger with your criticism of like becoming this defender of like. The maligned third film. Oh, like just wait till I get to the twentieth anniversary of King Peter Jackson's King Kong, guys. Only two more years to go. Oh, uh, well, that wasn't the maligned. That movie won a bunch of Oscars. Oh, I know. But, <laughs> but people, no, it's people true. don't treat I, it very kindly today. An- Anton, it's funny that you you bring up revolutions and stuff because I actually think like the closest analogs are the Matrix sequels in oh, terms yeah. of the wild ambitions and not <laughs> necessarily paying it off. But the, both the third movies in my mind, I, I hold them similarly where I'm like, this is a very interesting movie. There's aspects of it that I kind of love that the, mo- the movie goes in the opposite direction that you think. So like in Matrix Revolutions, the, um, the film's kind of staunch opposition to having a, a finality in it, right? Like it has it, it rejects the idea of a like linear narrative, 
essentially. I think I think a lot. Of, not not talking about the Matrix here, but I think a lot of people forget that it's not Matrix Revolution, but the Matrix Revolution. Revolution. Yeah. But it also fits with like the shift to, away from like savior, the idea of like actually it's going to almost Buddhist realm where it's like you don't need savior, you transcend the concept of it kind of thing. And likewise um, at World's End, I think I like that title suggests that they're pushing it to the limit, right? Like you you first you go to Singapore and then you go literally over the edge of the off world. Off the edge of the map. <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. But like at World's End, you know, it does not resolve the will and Elizabeth romance in the way that a typical hollywood oh no trilogy it's, kind of it's actually a really tragic sad ending even if will doesn't like die he's brought back but he's he only like gets cursed, to see his family right? every 10 years like, yeah. <laughs> yeah um so i admire it but i do think like at world's end is the worst of the three um i don't think it's as good as the first one and i on the level of I re- story so and I, entertainment i actually do think that it might uh it outdoes the first one in visuals. I think that oh, the the yeah, sets and the and the CGI and everything is is better than the like ghost pirates and stuff of the first one. And Singapore and some of the other sets are just like unreal. Like I, they just don't make a movie like that today. Like they created a set of like this like fantasy pirate world, and it looked it didn't look like a CGI backdrop in a Marvel movie. It looked as real as the Venice of Haunting of Venice that we just talked about. No, it's true. It's true. No, absolutely. And I actually think so. I to answer your like initial prompt, I rewatched all three, I re- and I rewatched Dead Man's Chest twice because I was writing on it, and I wanted to like confirm some of the timing aspects because the movie has a really, really strict structure with how it teases out things. Um, and I think at World's End, there's aspects of it that I think are like goofy as hell. Basically, all the whole Calypso stuff is like I don't think it works, <laughs> but I all I I enjoy the again the, the insanity of that like maelstrom ending. Um, but it's true that At World's End is like an enormous budget movie, and you can see the budget on the screen, and it like it's really epic in scale. It looks great. The CGI holds up so well today. Well, Curse the Black Pearl, I think, is like insanely rewatchable. Johnny Depp in it is like one of the all-time iconic performances. It's so quotable, but I still think that like once, <laughs> once they show up at Il de la Muerta with Elizabeth and they find out, wait, you're not Will Turner's like you're not Elizabeth it's, Turner, you're Elizabeth you're Swan, Turner, and they and they have to go back and then back. It's like the movie gets like it like soggy plotting where it's like I I'm like okay, it's a little too long. Well, Dead Man's Chest, I find like, oh no, this is a mo- This is like a Hollywood blockbuster. This is like hitting on all cylinders. It's just so fun. I think that the reason a lot of people look most fondly on uh, Dead Man, or, or sorry, uh, Curse of the Black Pearl, is because it is the best Jack Sparrow film of performances. It, I mean, Anton, as, as we were saying, like you, you said that it's one of the like iconic performances. If it's the most like iconic original character of the night. The, the 2000 aughts or whatever right yeah um he was literally nominated for best actor like alongside bill Which Murray I forgot about in my Penn. review yeah um he but won he, the screen actor yeah <laughs> but what's uh but whereas by the time i think you actually get to the the last couple he's kind of outstays welcome but actually what i like is that at world's end stuff make elizabeth and will a little more interesting so i think the first pirates like it, as I stated in my review, I think it's like the kind of movie where like it's undeniably just like a classic film, 
in large part because of the Johnny Depp performance. But it is a classic film. But it is one of these classic films that are like imperfect. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you're, it's true. Like I've watched I've watched that movie a number of times now, and I still don't really understand what's going on. In that, like you know, you're like three quarters in. You're like, what are we chasing right now? And where are we going? Where's Dead Man's Chest? Rewatching that was I, I did get a chance to rewatch that one, and so I, I will get to At World's End at some point. Dead Man's Chest is the it's sprawling, it's huge, right? It's two and a half hours. Um, the budget, everything looks amazing, right? Like it's obviously a bigger budget than the first one, but they they spend it well. And I don't know who it was originally, one of our you know sort of uh, film friends, but they said back in the day that you know like. Dead Man's Chest was like Empire Strikes Back, where it just expands the pirate's world. And you can see like the money on screen of how they've like expanded it. And that doesn't denigrate like, you know, A New Hope, Curse uh, the Black Pearl. But you just sort of see the expansion on screen. And it's it's great to take in. But it's also the the most tight uh, narratively. Like Mm -hmm. like when I rewatched Dead Man's Chest, I was like, the parts where I'm supposed to be, the parts where I'm confused, I'm supposed to be confused. Like, because the know, characters are constantly because the characters are switching. switching around and you're not like you know the the information hasn't been entirely revealed what what is the compass where's that leading like that stuff you're not supposed to know because it's keeping it like a mystery that is slowly parceled out and revealed but in terms of like the actual structure like you know Aaron in your review you point out like you get those things where it's like it's the slow reveal of Davy Jones the slow reveal of the building tension around the whole Kraken release like all this stuff is just managed superbly. And I think like it just has to be considered one of the great like swashbucklers. Absolutely. Like with the wheel fight, like it's just when I was just like, it's so good. It's it's hands down better than most blockbusters today for just the sheer entertainment of watching like the fighting and the combination of like the, the real effects, the CGI, all that sort of stuff. And I so I think Dead Man's Chest for me is like, Dead Man's Chest belongs in like it. It maybe someone thinks I'm crazy, but you're like this belongs up there with like Adventures of Robin Hood. You know, um, like this is one of the greatest. No, that's absolutely worse. That's absolutely that movie's what I was not perfect. Like, <laughs> no, but that's absolutely what I was thinking. Watch it again, where I was like, no, th- I think this is like a great movie actually, but it's like a movie movie, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like we're not. It's not. And it's not even trying to transcend the genre, right? This isn't the Dark Knight where it's like this is a film that's like turning the genre into like something on a very serious level. The way that also the Godfather took like mob stories and turned it into something supremely serious and significant. You're like, no, no, this is, but this is great the way that some of those like thirties adventures are. Even when I rewatched the Disney treasure Island, I was like, this is a really good good job of pointing out uh, how the, I think the the trilogy is a sort of, a most underrated or, or unsung great actor is Jeffrey Rush's Barbosa. Yeah. How he, the cues he takes. I just, after watching it, I'm like, I, maybe that's also why I like the third one because you get the most Barbosa as a hero. He's just like, as Aaron, as you pointed out, right? He's uh, the, he's, he's the Lando. Lander, he's the Lander. He's the Lando. The trilogy. No, it actually makes him the, the most uh, fun character. Man, he's, it is actually insane. And so when I, I remember, I was thinking about this when I was like editing your review and it's just like the overall structure of Curse of the Black Pearl is just identical to A New Hope. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's kind of, like if I just started talking it out loud and it was like, 
okay, you have this young orphan. He's living. His dad does doing this thing. He was out there in exploration. He gets caught up with this like rogue, and then he's gonna go find the princess that he's in love with. And then it's like they gotta go to the fortress of the, like the bad. <laughs> and then oh wait, they rescue her. But wait, they actually have to go here, and they're coming back to get them, and they have to go out again and actually solve the. You know, it's like every kind of connection of the characters and breaking apart and going back together is just them taking Han, Leia, and Luke and going together, apart, together, apart. The difference is there's no Obi-Wan and there's no Force stuff, right? But I'm just saying on like a... Mm. The, we talked about this even back in like 2006 yeah, once Dead Man's sure. Chest came out. We were always like, it's one, you know, it's like the Matrix and the Star Wars movies that understands the great trio, the great trio, like a yep. great trilogy is also about a trio of characters that like, I love these three and they split up and they get together. You're right, I didn't mention the... Yeah. The other thing that was interesting was like last week I, I rewatched for the first time in many, many years, um, The Mask of Zorro, speaking of swashbucklers, shows that some movies that have great sword fighting scenes and stuff with uh, Banderas, the, the Banderas and, um, well, yeah. Anthony Hopkins and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And, uh, you know, that film is a very classically constructed film. Uh, it has almost no CGI, which is interesting compared with like Pirates of the Caribbean, where I think that's the big difference. Gore Verbinski's use of like special effects and camera. Does Mask of Zero have so sorry, does it's nineteen ninety eight? It has all, very little, it, if any, at all. Yeah, it's almost like all like, practical stunts, yeah. like the scene when uh, Zoro chases the the guys on horseback and works his way from the back to the front, mm-hmm. taking this them really off the horses chase. is great. Um, but then I had totally forgotten when I got to the end of the film that it's screenplay by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio who wrote the, the Pirates trilogy. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. of course, of course, because they took that uh, same template and, and then with Gore Verbinski transferred it to the pirate world. So, no, so like people should revisit these movies, honestly, especially if you're if kind they of have feeling them, like they're going to, yeah. yeah, no, but especially if you're like getting worn down with like CGI slop now, because something like Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, whether you are on board with all the narrative stuff or not, but pr- it, it proves that like you can do marvelous, fantastical things with CGI and it can look cool on screen. Like it David doesn't Jones need to be amazing. A, it does not need to be a slog of grayness and shadow because even the scenes with like Davy Jones's crew, right? Mm-hmm. They're in shadow, but everything's clear because you have to see the details of the weird pirates. There's so the shark cool. guy. There's the, the, the there's conch. like the eel guy, the conch guy. <laughs> I just, that's the kind of creativity stuff in the shows. It's like, if you're going to spend the money, make it creative. But then something like mask of Zorro is like, Oh, you want something where it's about like star power, right? Too. Because you don't mm-hmm. really get that it's in like modern movies. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins was still young enough to be a, a little bit also like uh, cool. a in there. Yeah. He's pretty cool. They do also like I feel like um, it's really only like Tom Cruise Mission Impossible where you're actually getting like coherent yet super interesting chase scenes. I just feel like, you know, going back to like you know, watching pirates. I haven't watched mask of Zora in a while, but I just, you describing it. You're like, it's like, we've lost the ability to have like, you know, in so many of like, there's a lot of blockbusters that you're like this, this chase action scene is just not interesting. Like there's not actually that, um, that interplay with the environment and with the, the, like the playful interaction with all the objects around and that the pirate movies are really good at doing that too, where it's like, you know, even just like a fight in like, um, in the first film, the fight in the blacksmith, um, yeah, with the shop, you, the you know, donkey. like it's just, it's a, it's, it, it shows just a creativity with the environment that is, I just feel like I, I 
do not see on most of these sort of like action sequences. It demonstrates Spielbergian blocking. Yeah. So perhaps the the sort of sum up that we can say of this episode is there's still something to be said for uh, good old fashioned genre filmmaking and uh, paying attention to those little details, whether it's a a pirate swashbuckler or a uh, gothic thriller mystery. I'm going to kill Jones. Can't let you do that, will you? Because if Jones is dead, who's to call his terrible beastie off the hunt, eh? Now, if you please, the key. I keep the promises I make, Jack. I intend to free my father. I hope you're here to see it. I can't let you do that either. So sorry. I knew you'd warm up to me eventually. Lord Beckett desires the contents of that chest. I deliver it. I get my life back. The dark side of ambition. Oh, I prefer to see it as the promise of redemption. Thanks for listening, and please leave a five-star review, and we'll catch you next time on Three Brothers Films. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>